we're interested in states of consciousness that no one has ever experienced before. We don't think of ourselves as a psychedelics company. We see the psychedelics as tools to probe the infrastructure of the mind and design altered states of consciousness. What is up, people? This is a big one. How many states of consciousness have you actually been in? Most people have maybe got drunk, smoked cigarettes, some other things in that domain, meditated, exercised. But what if I told you there are potentially unlimited types of different states of consciousness? Our guest today is called Dylan, and he runs a company that designs states of consciousness. It's wild. This story just makes me feel like the boundaries of what's possible are so much further out than you would ever imagine in your day-to-day life. So he is a great role model for the Brick by Brick squad. I hope this conversation helps you to think bigger and it also shows you a bit of the future. I suggest a deep dive with this one. Find a quiet space, go for a walk, soak this conversation in and imagine the consequences of what Dylan is saying. Because as I say, it is truly, truly wild. Every now and then, a revolutionary podcast comes along that changes everything. Welcome to Brick by Brick episode eight with Dylan DiNardo, co-founder and CEO of MindState Design Labs. Hello, Dylan, and welcome to Brick by Brick. It's a real pleasure to have you on. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and speak to me. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you. It really is. A, I'm, I don't say that lightly. I really am super excited for this one. I've put in more research for this episode than any episode so far. <laughs> Nothing against the other guests, but yours, you've got such a unique viewpoint and the things you've done to me are just incredible. Um, one of the reasons I started this podcast was to highlight people going from zero to one on their journey rather than necessarily at one to end. And in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, he talks about how it's, it's easier to go horizontally with innovation. So from Facebook to Instagram, than it is to go vertically from the typewriter to the word processor. So I see you as someone who's helping to drive your company from zero to one. Because I suppose the first step would be psychedelic medicine, but now your company, MySet Design Labs, is taking that to the next level and hoping to be able to precision engineer states of mind for people for therapeutic purposes and other things. You've raised money from top Silicon Valley VCs. You've been through Y Combinator. You've raised money from angels like Naval, Max Hodak. So my first question is, why are the smartest people in the world investing in mindset design labs? What do they know? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Um, well, I think it's, it's partly the tech and it's partly the team. Uh, so I, I think that the way that we look at psychedelics is, is maybe fundamentally different from first generation psychedelics. So we, we use the headline of being a psychedelics company, but, but maybe fundamentally we don't think of ourselves as a, a psychedelics company. We more see the psychedelics as tools to probe the infrastructure of, of the mind. Um, and so I, I think that approach of, of looking at this whole field and this opportunity, not as necessarily a collection of drugs, but, but rather as the ability to intentionally and reproducibly design states of mind, design altered states of consciousness. And if you look at the field 
in that way, then, then there becomes a great deal of opportunity outside of the scope of existing psychedelics. So much of what is uh, psychedelic research it is just focused on the drugs that happen to be lying around by the uh, vicissitudes of history. So LSD and psilocybin and MDMA, and, um, and, and these are kind of the drugs that have just been popular or we've happened to run across them from uh, indigenous use. But what, what we're looking at is deconstructing those drugs and what those drugs do to the brain in a way that gives us the levers and the, the buttons to push on the different uh, ways in which mood and cognition and and our fundamental construct of perception can be uh, changed. So our sense of time and the memory function, and the sense of self and, and the whole affective domain, the, the way that psychedelics can allow you to experience emotions that are uh, maybe different or at least more intense than anything that's available to us within normal waking consciousness. So the the vision of, of doing that and then the uh, the tech that we've put behind it and our, our use of AI, our use of natural language processing and our combination of those technical abilities together with deep domain expertise, um, I, I think was a big part of the, uh, the selling point. Um, and then the, the, the team, I think, was, was probably the, the number one most important thing. Um, so we have uh, an incredible team. Um, our chief scientific officer, uh, Paul Wren, was the former global head of depression and anxiety at GSK. Our medical lead, David Huff, was the VP at Janssen who led developments of Esketamine, which is the uh, the only approved uh, or FDA approved hallucinogen at, at this point. Um, but first and foremost, I, I think, is our scientific founder, Dr. Tom Ray, who is uh, just absolutely fascinating. So he's one of these polymaths who's made seminal contributions to multiple fields of science. He started university when he was 16. And, and I think maybe he was 20 years old before he'd even begun his PhD at Harvard. He was already publishing in, in journal science about new phenomena of nature he discovered. Uh, so he has a, a long and illustrious career. He's most famous for creating the uh, the first instance of evolution by natural selection after life on earth. So this is the world's first artificial life program. Um, and, uh, and for the past couple of decades, he's focused his research on the phenomenology of, uh, of psychedelic experience. Uh, and so I, I think uh, Tom and I just had this common vision of focusing on designing states of consciousness, focusing on the phenomenology and, and diving into the neural correlates of consciousness and why at the biochemical level, at the neural level, different psychedelics produce different kinds of mind states. Um, and so it, it was the, the, the tech, the vision and, and the team all together. I was just laughing then because that is potentially one of the best pitches you could probably give to VCs. I mean, it's got everything. It's got the world-class team to execute on vision, the vision, which has got huge potential. And I'm right in believing that mental health is like the, the most damaging, but least funded area of biotech. Yeah, it's definitely the largest problem in the life sciences. It's larger than cancer, larger than cardiovascular disease. Um, if you look at the the economic cost of, of mental health disorders and uh, addiction and tobacco use and, and all of these uh, areas, uh, it's it's well north of a uh, trillion dollars uh, annually in, in the U.S. Um, and we spend uh, in the U.S. specifically two hundred eighty billion uh, a year in direct spending on mental health care costs. Um, there's also a there's a three to one ratio of disease burden to healthcare spending. So we spend three times as much. Uh, or we the the uh, mental health disorders cost us three times as much as as we spend. 
roughly. And normally you want to see a one-to-one ratio, but we just don't have great tools uh, that antidepressants and, and many of these other first-line interventions for mental health disorders either just don't work very well uh, or they have terrible side effects. Um, and, and so, yes, there's, there's great opportunity here because of that combination of how big the problem is, how fast the problem is growing, and how poor our, our current tools and solutions are for the area. So am I right in understanding that, let's say, a mental health disorder, like depression, at the moment is treated with an antidepressant, which is a combination of chemicals, and some of which that's the intended um, effects and some of which are side effects which are unintended and not useful so what you are hoping to be able to do is pull apart the useful um, biochemical compounds that act on specific areas of the brain and deliver that so you get the desired effect with minimized side effects Yes. So the current frontline treatments for many mental health disorders would be SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So these are your typical antidepressants. Um, They act on the serotonin system, but they have a a number of downsides. Uh, One of the downsides is that they're very slow to act. Um, So it it could take weeks, it could take months before the effect actually kicks in. Um, And and once they do kick in, the side effects there, the effect on mood, the the other concerns are are often prohibitive for people. I I think the adherence rate for antidepressants is roughly 50%. Uh, 50% of people just discontinue antidepressants on their own, uh, despite being uh, prescribed uh, the the drug by the doctor. Um, So that's that's a huge problem. It it just... it doesn't work is the, is, is the main problem. For some people, it, it certainly does. And, and I'm certainly glad we have antidepressants and many people have been impacted. Um, but for, for such a large portion of people, it, it doesn't work. And so psychedelics are, are fundamentally different in their biochemistry. So psychedelics do act on the serotonin system, uh, specifically the 5-HT2A serotonin subtype, so that there's some distinction of the biochemistry here. But more significantly, psychedelics are much more of uh, an acute kind of therapy. So rather than taking a pill uh, every day for an extended period of time and and having a a maybe slightly different balance of of, uh, brain chemistry, instead what psychedelics do is produce this very temporary, very acute change to consciousness. Um, And and there are many different kinds of psychedelics that do this in many different ways, but um, it's, it's this ability to very significantly, very profoundly uh, in a supervised session, change the way that the patient sees the world, interacts with their identity and their environment and their personal history, and the way in which having that new place to stand, that new perspective, gives the patient the ability to confront the, uh, the trauma or the problem that is at the root of their diagnosis. Uh, and so that's why we've seen such incredible results in trials for psychedelics. And that's what the potential is for psychedelics to treat these kinds of disorders in a, a way that is, is safer and, and more effective than antidepressants and, and other current mental health treatments. Society over the last hundred years has gone through like a back and forth of psychedelics. And I'd say at the moment, people don't really understand or haven't noticed the sort of revolution that's happening again. Um, I feel like AI and crypto have taken over everyone's minds of like, this is what's happening, this is what's important. What are some of the headlines that you can talk about in terms of the um, clinical results that we've seen so far that showcase how effective psychedelics are at solving the mental health problem? 
Uh, I think one of the biggest ones is for MDMA. So MDMA, uh, commonly known as, as ecstasy, um, was originally a therapy drug before it escaped onto the streets, before it became a party drug, it was, uh, was used in therapy. Um, and so there's a, a nonprofit organization called MAPS that has been taking MDMA through the whole FDA process for decades now. And just over the past couple of years, they've released results for uh, their phase two trial and then their phase three trial for treatment resistant PTSD. So these are people who uh, have had PTSD for an extended period of time. I think for their phase two trial, uh, the average time that they spent with a PTSD diagnosis was 17.8 years. Um, so they're, they're just living for decades with these, these symptoms. And PTSD is a very complex disease, notoriously difficult to treat. Um, but with three sessions of MDMA therapy, 67% of these patients improved so significantly, they no longer even qualified for the PTSD diagnosis. So it's not just significantly helping uh, their symptoms, you, you could actually begin to make the claims of, of this being a cure. Once once phase three are, are done and the FDA approves, you can start to make the cure claim, but we're very close to that. So cool. it's those kinds of incredible results. You see similar results with psilocybin, um, with other drugs like DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, Ibogaine, uh, and a variety of, uh, of conditions, variety of diseases that are characterized by a, a narrow repertoire of uh, behavior and, and thought. So anything on the end of PTSD, depression, anxiety, OCD, um, uh, what, what psychedelics are not good for would be things on uh, the spectrum of schizophrenia and, and bipolar disorder. But uh, there are a really wide variety of disorders that psychedelics have uh, been in early trials and are, are showing you know, incredible potential, really large effect sizes in those trials. Fascinating. And Let's say that maps get through phase three with that trial. Does that mean it's only going to be allowed to, you'll only be allowed to use MDMA to treat people who have had treatment resistant um, PTSD for decades? Or does it, do you have to test it on different groups to get that approval? Yes, you, you do need to test uh, the, the drug on different patient populations in order to get approval for different uh, diseases, but uh, physicians are able to prescribe uh, any medication off-label, um, and so theoretically there, there is the ability for, uh, for physicians to decide to prescribe MDMA for depression, for anxiety, for some of these other disorders. It is a bit of a gray area, particularly okay. because MDMA is a uh, in the USA, a Schedule One compound and similar designations in other areas of the world. There's lots of regulatory complexity there, but we do think in the near future, MDMA and other psychedelics can be prescribed a, a bit more broadly. Mm. And I've heard that one of the reasons that people became skeptical about um, psychedelic drugs, MDMA in particular, is Oprah, I believe, did a TV show. It was supposed to be two parts about how MDMA is dangerous and how it's beneficial, but then dropped the second part. And never corrected the first part where they claimed that research showed that MDMA caused your brain to have holes in. So is that true? Does it burn holes in your brain? <laughs> well, the, yeah, the research did show that it's uh, burned holes in the brain, but uh, they, they found out afterwards that the researchers had accidentally administered uh, meth 
instead of MDMA. So that, that tends to change the results of scientific experiments when, when you change your independent variable to, to meth. So <laughs> no, it is not true. And uh, studies in know. MDMA that have been validated do not show, uh, there's certainly no, no holes in the brain. Uh, research is ongoing looking at the, the various uh, physical risks and the psychological risks. And, and so any kind of powerful medication um, and, and really any, any medication, any substance, if you take the dose up uh, high enough, will probably result in some adverse effects. But in clinical settings, um, psychedelics are, as a broad category, remarkably safe. Um, so LSD, psilocybin, for example, physiologically are probably safer than anything you have in your medicine cabinet at, at home. Um, uh, so the, those risks are, are very much overblown. There was a lot of uh, propaganda that was tied up in the, uh, the, the cultural uh, happenings of the 1960s and and the ban on research afterwards. So most of those risks are overblown. There are certainly risks that we can we can get into, but uh, it's it's not going to uh, burn any holes in your brain. <laughs> That's good news, but it's something to be respected. It's not a miracle. Take as much as you want, and the more you take, the better it gets. It's for we're talking about clinical settings here. Yeah. Yes, d dose is very important. Supervision is very important. Screening of patients beforehand is very important because some people are, are just not uh, good matches for, for the therapy and may face enhanced risks. Um, so definitely don't try this at home. Uh, find a, a qualified facilitator, uh, ideally have a qualified physician and therapist presence. Uh, the protocol uh, itself and the, the therapy portion is really inseparable from the drug. The, the drug mm -hmm. probably won't cure you. So if, if you take uh, MDMA and you, you go to a rave, uh, you, you might have a great time dancing. Um, there's a chance it could cure your PTSD, but probably not. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what cures your PTSD is the combination of administering the drug that puts the patient in that kind of mind state. So with MDMA, it's, it's this uh, what's called the intactogenic mind state. Uh, so it's this feeling that all is well with the world and uh, this overwhelming feeling of empathy, and it's accompanied by the ability to safely contemplate mental pain. So in a therapeutic environment, you're in a, a very calm room, uh, so no crowds, no, no loud music, no flashing lights. Um, you're typically lying down on a couch, you're wearing eye coverings, you have headphones on with music that is specially designed uh, for an introspective kind of experience. And so the patient is there with the intention to cure their PTSD, confront their trauma, and think about those things that they've been talking with their therapists about. And the therapists are there to reassure the patients, to make sure that nothing goes wrong psychologically or physically. Um, and so you get a very different response from the combination of that therapy together with that drug. And, and that's crucial. Interesting. Very interesting. So how did you get into this? You used to be a VC in the biotech industry, but and before that you worked at Accenture in accounting. So what's the journey for Dylan to get to this position? Yeah, so I started in, in finance. Uh, I did a lot of work on mergers and acquisitions. Uh, so buying, selling companies, uh, spinoffs. Um, and, and that's kind of uh, maybe, maybe half of the VC world. So investing in the company and then divesting uh, after the company has grown is, is half of the equation. But I was able to, to take that skill set and then move into biotech VC. Um, and in that VC role, I had the opportunity to not only invest, but also take operational roles. 
roles in early stage startups to step in as an interim executive and kind of help stand the company up and, and get uh, these very early stage companies off the ground. So that's uh, it's a great experience to, to uh, both have the investing side and, and the operations side. Um, and so, yeah, professionally, um, that, that was my background. And I've always been uh, inspired by medicine and biotech and, and the ability of technology to have an impact in people's lives that is so uh, so tangible and so direct. Uh, some, uh, some other options for careers, uh, you, you can certainly make a big impact on the world, say, uh, being a, a stockbroker, but it, it's such an intangible uh, kind of thing, and you're removed several layers from, from the impact that's actually having on people's lives. Biotech was just a, a great fit for me, and uh, I, I'd been particularly concerned uh, about the the area of mental health. Um, part of it was putting my VC hat on the opportunity there and, and the need there, the unmet need for patients was huge, the biggest in life sciences. Uh, there was the personal elements as well. So I myself had been diagnosed with PTSD, with ADHD, with major depressive disorder. And I was one of those early adopters of psychedelic therapy. Uh, back at that time, there were various regions of the world you could go to uh, where you would have religious use exemptions, you would have just some compounds that's legal in those areas uh, where you could have physician supervision, the proper kind of therapy. So I still haven't been to a party and taken a drug, haven't uh, had that that uh, experience that many people have in being introduced to psychedelics. So I'm not, not criticizing that, just wasn't my path. But I saw firsthand the power of that type of therapy. And I, I would not make the claim that I, I was cured. Uh, this is just one person and an anecdote and claims of uh, a cure can only be made after you know, placebo controlled double blind phase three trials. But um, I, I can say at this point, it, it's been a, a long time since I've qualified on the scales for any of those diagnoses. That is truly remarkable. And it makes you such a great like, figurehead but because the common thing like that society would say about psychedelics is, oh, it's just people taking drugs. But having not come up taking drugs at parties and things like that, and having come through the clinical experience, I feel like that really stands you in good stead to be able to like, head up a company like Mindstate and make a really positive change to the world. Fortunate in, in that respect, yeah. And, and that, to be fair, there are, there are many, uh, it, it, it's amazing every day I meet other, uh, other entrepreneurs, other people in the space who seem to all have the same story of, of a mental health struggle and turning to psychedelics and finding the, the power of that particular therapeutic approach. So I, I think mm -hmm. that's largely what's driving the industry is uh, whether it's, it's entrepreneurs or investors or physicians or, uh, or scientists. Uh, so many people have had these experiences and have been waiting for the moments when uh, just commercialization is possible. When it's possible to actually take the resources of, of capitalism and, and put them into driving these kinds of therapies forward. Do you feel a responsibility in building a company in a capitalist society? You're one of a group of companies bringing psychedelics into the world and you might not be here forever. This company might live on a hundred years beyond you. So do you feel a sense of responsibility and how do you think about building the company as you would like to build it in line with your values? It's a good question. I think on a, a daily basis, what I, I think about is is the patients, um, honestly, and it, it's more of a, a human impact um, kind of thing. And I, I'm just, uh, I certainly have many friends who are struggling, and I've known people who 
uh, who, who just struggle with these kind of disorders, who struggle with the trauma that, that gives rise to these kinds of diagnoses. And uh, I feel a responsibility, you know, to them, to the to the world, uh, to be able to to bring these solutions, to bring these types of therapies, these types of experiences that can be so profoundly meaningful and so profoundly healing. Um, and certainly in, in starting a company, you want it to last uh, far beyond you. So I, uh, I, I don't know that I spend too much time thinking about what, uh, what 100 years from now would look like, but I, I certainly hope uh, maybe a, a decade from now we're living in a very different world where people have much better solutions to the, these mental health challenges. So that tends to be my focus. That's really cool. And I think it's incredible what you did to start Mindset. So you were interested in psychedelics, then you researched it, right? And then you reached out to one of the brightest scientists in the world, in this field, Tom, and then started the company. So did you go into your research on psychedelics with the goal of starting a company or were you just curious or was it from this passion to help people in the world and this feel like that's your responsibility? What was the thinking? Yeah, it was, it was very personally driven. I had the good fortune of being able to have a, a number of different psychedelic experiences. So it, it wasn't one particular compound that I did a lot. It was uh, various compounds, various types of experiences. And what struck me the most is that the way in which those experiences varied um, and the way in which certain experiences would have a profound impact. Um, even within one particular drug, you could take a drug a hundred times and there'd be this one experience that would just change everything. Um, and, and that has often been my experience. It's been the experience of, of many people uh, who I've talked to. And so the central problem or the central mission that kind of arose out of that was this mission of mapping the, the biological basis of these different states. Um, so why... Why does this particular experience happen? Why does that particular experience happen? Um, with the goal of being able to reproduce those experiences. So not everyone who takes psilocybin gets better, but if you, in, in psilocybin research, there are various questionnaires looking at the types of experiences that people have. So one example of that is the mystical experience questionnaire. There's this type of experience that's uh, commonly referred to as ego loss. The technical term is oceanic boundlessness, but it's this way in which the sense of self dissolves. Uh, so consciousness continues. You continue to be aware of, of what is happening, but you are not there anymore. There, there is no more Ollie. There, there is just awareness. Um, and so you can measure the, the occasioning of that experience with these rating scales. And, and what has been found in, in these trials is that people who have that ego loss experience tend to get better, whether it's depression or uh, addiction or anxiety. And people who don't have that experience don't have treatment outcomes that, that are as good. So that, that showed me that it, it, it is, you know, consistently with my experience, it, it is that particular type of state of consciousness, that particular type of experience, that particular way of higher order brain functions interacting with the environment that drives the outcome, that drives the profound change in people's lives. So I, I went into the research, uh, I went into the literature with this particular question of what causes the variance and how, you, how can you make it more reproducible? Um, and there was nothing. Uh, so I, this may just be an artifact of research being banned for so many years. 
Um, it's partly an artifact of the fact that there is no translational model in psychedelics. So normally in drug development, you have an animal. So you, you'll give a, a mouse cancer and then you'll uh, administer a particular treatment to the mouse and then you'll show the mouse no longer has cancer. So that's, that's your translational model and that gives you some degree of confidence to then go forward into the clinic and test your therapy on humans. There is no such model for psychedelics. The, the mice can't tell you whether they're experiencing ego loss or they, they can't tell you what type of ego loss they're experiencing if, if mice are even capable of experiencing ego loss. So there's no way to, to really get at this question or, or there was no way to get at this question of how is the experience different and what is the underlying biological driver of, of these different types of experiences. And so when I came across Tom's research, you know, other scientists were talking about head twitches in mice, uh, but, but Tom is talking about uh, the rasa of the mountain. It's this focus on phenomenology, this focus on linguistics and, and pushing the, the barriers of language and being able to draw these distinctions uh, between these, these different types of very ineffable states of consciousness. Um, and, and so that immediately stood out to me as, as the key, as, as the data that could take us from where we are now to the point where we can actually intentionally design states of consciousness by mapping the underlying biology to our experience, our subjective experience, the, the phenomenology of the state. So you're taking the biochemical substance and then seeing what people who take it report, what they say. Um, how they feel and all these things from things like questionnaires and then mapping the two together. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yep. So we, uh, so we, we've taken a, a number of different psychedelic drugs. So dozens of psychedelic drugs and then assay those drugs against dozens of sites in the brain. So we're trying to figure out where in the brain do different psychedelics hit. Um, and there's a great deal of complexity that, that follows after that, all of these, uh, so that there's a functional selectivity problem. How exactly does the drug hit that site in the brain? And then there's the problem of downstream interaction. All these sites then interact with each other through downstream pathways. Um, but, but ultimately, every psychedelic drug has a different pattern of engagement with the brain. And so it's, it's about applying uh, both, both natural history, you know, manually looking at these patterns, as well as applying computational methods to separate out how do these different patterns of engagement with the brain lead to the different patterns of experience? Um, so the, the intactogenic state of MDMA, that, that empathy, or the EOS state of psilocybin. Uh, there's a, a drug that uh, transports you to a different place where you typically interact with entities. Uh, it's called DMT. There's a drug 5-MeO that typically results in this, uh, what I see as kind of a Buddha-esque ego loss experience. So it's, it's, uh, it's where all form and content dissolve and there's sort of this pure nothingness. There's a drug that uh, often results in kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge type experience where you're taken through a series of memories of your life and panoramic visual scenes so that there's this great variety and we're trying to figure out how do the different patterns of activation in the brain by different drugs lead to these types of experiences. So rather than just having this symphony of experience, we're trying to extract out the individual instruments to say, okay, what gives us memory replays? What gives us entities? What gives us this type of ego loss versus that type of ego loss and, and so forth? I think people think psychedelics, you've got LSD, shrooms, DMT, but what you're saying is that's just what we happen to have discovered, but there could be a range of combination of those or completely novel substances that create a range of mind states in the user. 
right? Yes. And and first of all, so uh, Alexander and Anne Sheldon are commonly called the godparents of psychedelics. They created most psychedelics that exist in the world today, uh, several hundred of them. And they uh, they they sampled the psychedelics, and, and this was uh, completely legal at the time. And and they shared their subjective experiences, and they shared the synthesis data. And so as a result, these hundreds of drugs have been in use for decades. And people have been trying various drugs, and and many of these drugs lead to different types of experiences than the common ones we know. But we're talking about deconstructing not just the the common drugs, but but all of these hundreds of others into their component parts. So maybe there's a particular aspect of LSD that people sometimes experience, but but not always. Uh, and, and maybe there's a way of mapping which aspect of LSD happens to lead to that experience. And how can we turn the volume up on that particular aspect to increase the reliability of that type of experience? And then after that, you can go beyond existing psychedelics. So we, we use a combination approach, actually, where we're taking multiple molecules and putting them together. So the, the networks engaged by existing psychedelics are only a subset of the brain. And we're interested in how we can test out different patterns of engagement with the brain, different neural networks that might lead to states of consciousness that no one has ever experienced before. And those might have very unique therapeutic applications. So it's the uh, the scope of the approach and the, the possibility of expanding the frontiers of, of human experience that's most exciting for us. That's insane. Do you see any technologies coming in in the next, I'm just going to push it all the way out, like 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years, that like quantum computing, AI, things like Neuralink. Um, do you ever think about how this technology might play in with those and create like a crescendo of what's possible? Yes, it's it's very interesting thinking about how these things interact. Um, right at this moment, there's this crazy interaction of the boom in psychedelics with the boom in AI and uh, large language models and natural language processing in particular. And that has really uh, accelerated what we've done and enabled what we've done that particular intersection. But as time goes on, we get into, I, I think, very sci-fi kind of situations mm. in the relatively near future. Um, so once we map out the the neural correlates of consciousness and the neural correlates of different types of altered states of consciousness and psychedelic experiences, we, we then know at the receptor level, uh, at the target level, how the molecules are engaging with the brain. Then we also know at the functional level, at the, at the neural level, which regions of the brain are being activated and, and which networks of different brain regions are talking to each other and how do those patterns correspond to the experience. And so theoretically, yes, you can have a brain computer interface where instead of taking a drug, you can flip a switch and induce a type of psychedelic experience. And this has already been done to some extent with, uh, with, with, uh, 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 various various forms of technology, um, magnets and, and so forth. So I, I think people speculate about someday just having an app where you, you don't take a drug, but you just press the on button and it, it starts a uh, certain state of consciousness. And that has immense possibilities and that will also be extremely dangerous. So it will be yeah. very interesting to see how regulation evolves and how these issues of um, of transcendence and the issues of addiction kind of interact with each other as, as all of these technologies kind of collide over the coming decades. Is there any reason, I guess no one will have ever researched this, but maybe you can say what you think intuitively. You're talking about applying a psychedelic state and let's say you get to the point where you can use a certain thing and it just um, fills you with a content feeling. Do you think 
that's possible? Or do you think that the feeling of contentness has like a time decay that no matter how much stimulus it will leave or a different part of your consciousness will get used to it and just absorb it and see it as normal? Does that make sense? Uh, yes, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that exists already. I think that's opioids. <laughs> and so you can, you, you can very quickly see where the potential and where the risk uh, uh, comes in there. Um, of course, we've seen absolutely devastating effects on, on communities, on entire nations um, of, of opioid addiction. Um, and, and that is the danger with, with many of these states. So psychedelic states are, are different. And maybe I can go into to that a little bit. Psychedelic states tend to be anti-addictive um, because they, they tend to manifest whatever it is in your subconscious that you are not willing to deal with. Right. So if, if there's something, you know, that you're doing wrong, if there's some excuse that you're making some way in, in which you're deceiving yourself or making a justification, some way in which you're deluded, uh, the psychedelic will tend to rub your face in that for an extended period of time and, and in a very intense way. Um, so psychedelics don't tend to be a, a good way to run away from your problems in life. Um, but as we talk about sort of programming neural states and, and different kinds of emotions, um, depending on the particular system of the brain that's involved, particularly if it's the opioid system, if it's the dopaminergic system, uh, you have these very high potentials for addiction. Um, and this, this potential for the states to, uh, to, to have a very negative effect on the life, on the person's life and really hijack, uh, your, your systems. Um, I, I think that some drugs can become very valuable in demonstrating to you what the top of the mountain looks like. Um, so if, if you have a, say a near death experience or a very adrenaline producing experience, it's possible to have these very kind of mystical, spiritual transcendent experiences because your, your brain is being flooded with dopamine and norepinephrine and, and all these other chemicals. Um, and so I, I think that's often what some of these drugs do. It, it takes us to these peak states, um, and give us a, it gives us a picture of what is possible. Um, but the danger is that you then keep running after those peak states rather than taking the lesson from that state, and integrating it into your life in a way that is productive and helpful and healing. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating question. And, and each particular application, each, each particular type of programmable emotion, so to speak, is going to come with its own set of uh, possibilities and, and risks. And so it's something to be uh, very careful about and, and very highly. Yeah. So I guess as with any like new technology, society has got a big responsibility to bring it in smoothly and keep spreading the word and educating people. Um, which actually brings me on to another question. I watched a podcast yesterday with I've forgotten the guy's name, but he was saying that there's an AI emergency and it needs to be stopped. And in, in the podcast, he said that AI could be considered sentient. And I'm not sure how I, whether I agree with that or not, but I'm very keen to see what you think of that. Like, can an AI have consciousness today? Yeah, I, I think at, at this point in time, from the experts I've talked to, I, I don't think that that's considered a, a possibility, uh, the, that the existing technology is sentient in any way. Um, but it's a, a fascinating question as to will that happen and, and when? Um, and, and there are a whole set of philosophical and, and 
uh, even religious concerns that, uh, that come up as a result. Um, I think uh, we, we can certainly go very deeply into different theories of consciousness. And the bottom line is that we have not solved the hard problem of consciousness. So we can, we can look into these neural correlates of consciousness. We can understand what region of the brain lights up when you're happy or when you're afraid or when you're doing a certain task. Um, but we, we don't know why it feels like something to exist. Well, why do you have a subjective experience? Um, and so I, I think the main school of thought there is, is a scientific materialist school of thought that says at some degree of complexification of a, a system of information, there arises this, this thing called the subjective experience. Um, and it, it seems that, uh, that rationally, that's very likely what is happening with consciousness and because we don't understand what consciousness is and why it happens, it's impossible to then say when a machine will be conscious. The other point of view, which, which I find probably less likely, but much more intuitively satisfying, is the idea that consciousness is not an emergent property of the organization of matter, but is rather a fundamental force of, of the universe, a fundamental part of the fabric of reality. Um, so there's this, this metaphor uh, by many of the early fathers of, of psychedelics where they would talk about uh, psychedelics and, and the mind specifically as a reducing valve. So if you, if you look around yourself right now, there's an endless level of complexity. You, you can zoom into a particular texture on a particular key of your keyboard and, and there's infinite complexity there. Um, and, and so the question is, how does the mind choose what sensory in, uh, inputs to uh, then actually put into conscious experience? Um, and, and so the metaphor is the brain is a reducing valve. There's this infinite amount of input and it's coming into the brain and the brain is converting those electrical signals into some hallucination of experience. So even, even normal waking consciousness, what we're experiencing now is, is technically a creation of the brain. So you're seeing an increasing number of physicists and philosophers taking this approach more seriously, this, this thought that consciousness itself is a fundamental force of, of the universe and uh, our brains are simply reducing valves, kind of uh, uh, doorways for consciousness to, uh, to be expressed. Um, and so if that is true, then we sort of run into the same problem with AI. Uh, what kind of technology is it that would allow a, a silicon-based life form rather than a carbon-based life form to create that same type of reducing valve and, and bring a conscious perspective into existence? So I, I think that is a, a bit more woo-woo, a bit more out there, but I think just intuitively um, it's more interesting. So these are fascinating mm -hmm. questions and, and we definitely do not have the answer. Yeah, that's super interesting. So when you say you find the second explanation intuitively more easy to understand, do you say intuitively easier to understand or intuitively more interesting? Uh, just, just personally, intuitively more satisfying. I, I just, okay, yeah, I agree with that. that for no logical reason. Yeah. Well, the idea that our brain is a very complex, um, sum of calculations and somehow we just became conscious out of that. If that was found to be true, that's quite a scary thought after your living your whole life thinking you're a human and you've got, you're on the hero's journey to complete X, Y, Z. And then you just find out that you're just a selection of matter that happened to have a conscious, an illusion of consciousness arise. 
that's a scary thought. Yeah. I, I yeah get fascinating I mean. implications around uh, fate and, and the existence of free will and, and all kinds of things. Yeah. That's the thing with psychedelics. It's, it's not like any other industry because you have to have a knowledge of science, philosophy, history, I guess. It's kind of everything because, yeah, it's kind of scary as well. It doesn't feel like there's many walls when you start going quite deep because the brain is just so not well understood at all. Have you read A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins, by any chance? No, I haven't. You, you should uh, summarize it for me. What's it about? It's very hard to summarize because I need to reread it. But the essential thing is he researched the brain in order to develop an AGI, an artificial general intelligence. And in this book, which I think came out like five years ago, he said they're way off AGI. Machine learning models are basically based off statistics and like how likely something is to be something, which is very different to like an emergent consciousness and intelligence, which is what he's trying to recreate. In an effort to recreate that AGI, him and his team studied the brain really closely and they were trying to recreate an actual brain, whereas machine learning is kind of doing it the opposite way around and recreating a brain through like data. But he basically found out that, well, his theory is that there's like 150,000 columns in the brain and they all are identical, but as you grow up, they all take on different roles. And that's why you have different regions that do different things. So that was interesting. But the reason I bring it up is because it's the most interesting book I've read about neuroscience. And when I was reading a book, another book by Michael Pollan, who's been on Joe Rogan talking about psychedelics, he mentions, okay, everyone needs to bear with me because this goes through a lot of names. But he mentions Robin, who is an advisor for you guys who mentions Stanislav Grof, who says that psychedelics will be to the brain what the telescope is to astrology and the microscope was to biology. So it's a tool to look more deeply and inspect the brain, which is vastly misunderstood right now. So I have breathe a bit. <laughs> Given that it might be a tool to investigate the brain, where do you think we need to be looking and what might, what sort of things might we expect to find? Yeah, I love the quote. It's an amazing quote and I, I think a hundred percent accurate. And I, I, I think that's exactly what we're trying to do is we, we see psychedelics, you know, not so much as individual drugs, but as, as the tools to probe the mind and, and understand uh, what's going on. Um, and I, I think the, uh, the, the way that the deeper understanding of the brain will emerge is in this combination of looking at the biochemical correlates of consciousness together with the neural correlates of consciousness. So, so combining uh, what's happening at the receptor level to what's happening at the, uh, the level of which regions of the brain are being activated and tying that into the phenomenology. How does that then uh, correlate with our subjective experience? Um, and so we've begun building the platform to, to do exactly that. And I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with that particular book, but it's, it's a great debate um, about whether AGI will emerge from models of the human brain or whether it will emerge completely independently just from, uh, from computing architecture. Um, there's, there's an argument to be made both ways. So many of the uh, 
existing AI technologies, for example, are were inspired by the human visual cortex. But there are there are key differences to the way that we would design a computer architecture and the way that nature would design uh, a mind. Um, so evolution, for example, is limited to being able to reuse whatever parts already exist uh, from, from existing systems, and it's limited to uh, the materials that are available to it, whereas you know, we humans can manufacture silicon and, and you know, all kinds of uh, different kinds of complex materials. So I, I do think that it will be a merger of the two, that the cognitive science will somewhere meet uh, computer science. And I, I think that's the eventual path to AI, but no one really has a, a line of sight as to when that will happen and how that will happen. But I, I do, I, one of the things that excites me the most is is not how we're applying AI to psychedelics, but how our psychedelic research and our, our mapping of the brain and our mapping of subjective experience, experience of time, experience of self, experience of emotion, all, all of this could potentially then inform new architectures, the AI systems that, that could give us uh, further advancements on. on oh, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. That was actually going to be one of my questions because the guy's thesis is like understand the brain to develop AI and you guys are going to understand the brain in new ways, in new um, like correlations. So there's a good way to find new models. That is so fascinating. Yeah, I think so. In, in the near term, we're very focused on, on therapeutics, right? So that's, that's what is reasonable from a, a regulatory basis, from a scientific basis, in terms of just creating a, a commercial company that brings in the, the resources necessary to carry the research forward and make an immediate impact on the world. Um, mm. that's, the, that's the long-term dream of, of what can happen once we build mm. this foundation of technology. I suppose you're fighting balance between like intellectual curiosity and where this place could go and commercial reality, which is that you need to bring a sustainable business model into the world for those things to be achieved. So you have to think about that now. And then that stuff comes down the line. So yeah, that's, that's always the challenge for, uh, for biotech. At the beginning of every scientific discovery, you, you have to think about how do you first apply it? What is the quickest path or what is the most valuable path to making an impact on, on the lives of patients? And you, you have to consider all these issues of, of uh, market size and cost of clinical trials and, and dozens of other factors. We're certainly very focused on, on prioritizing our, our discoveries for highest market impacts. Um, and once you do that uh, down the road, eventually uh, other interesting things start to happen. Do you think Y Combinator was very valuable in sort of gaining that sort of idea of getting to market with a thing that you can definitely solve first and then building from there? Because your company is not a typical Y Combinator startup. You can't build an MVP in a few months. <laughs> yes, great question. Uh, YC was definitely very valuable. Um, and, and it would surprise a lot of people to know that uh, YC is actually the, the most prolific funder of biotech companies um, uh, due to just their reach and their, their check size and, and so forth. So we're, uh, we're less atypical now, but certainly the foundation of, of YC was very much in the software world, whereas what we're doing now straddles the world of, of software and AI and then the world of life sciences and, and drug development. And I think it, there were many ways in which it was hugely valuable. I don't think that the selection of market path was um, one of our big questions when we were in YC, because just with, with my experience, having done this kind of dozens of times and um, having gone through that process already with the, the company, 
Um, it wasn't really focused as a black combat here, but, uh, but YC was valuable in, in a, a lot of things, um, in, in certainly developing the, the pitch and streamlining the, the story, focusing on priorities. Uh, one of the things that is really impressive about YC is it's, it's not about, um, uh, clever, complex, creative uh, tricks and, and methods. It's it's much more about focusing on what is the one thing that matters and, and getting down to being able to express your idea in very simple language and to focus very intensely and directly on your customer and who is your customer and what is the pain that you're solving and how are you doing that and how are you talking about doing that? Um, so that, that to me was the, the biggest value of YC, I think. Um, ever since we first met, I always felt that you had the story just nailed. So is that something you already had beforehand? I think on our first call, when we first worked together, you said, hi, I'm Dylan. I run Mindstate. We do this. What do you do? And it was, everything was just smooth and polished. And you speak to other psychedelic startups and it's just a wash with like four syllable words. And it's really hard to understand. So were you already aware of the importance of storytelling or is it something that you learned in this process? Uh, well, well, both, uh, certainly, uh, you know, YC, uh, improved my abilities in that regard. And, um, part of the program is they make you say that story repeatedly to everyone <laughs> and, okay. uh, and, and get criticism from everyone and get feedback from everyone. And so you've been through so many iterations, you start to understand the way to connect the story to, to an audience. Um, and, and I think maybe that's part of what you ran into is maybe some psychedelic companies are, are very used to a drug development, life science, biotech kind of audience, um, which is the, the language used for that audience is very different yeah. from the language you use for, for say more of a, a software kind of audience or a general audience or, or so forth. Do you think it's important to appeal to a general audience in the, in the psychedelic space at this point in time, or are we not at the stage where that's as important? I do think it's important. I, I think that all of these things work together. Uh, there's a, a bit of tension in the psychedelic space between the medical side of things, which which is very, um, uh, it, it's much more traditional and it leans into the traditional medical model and it brings in the, the forces of capitalism. Um, and then there's this other side of psychedelics that is all about decriminalization. Um, and the, the folks on the decriminalization side will, will say, uh, well, yes, you can give people a miracle drug, but if you're not solving the fundamental forces that are driving the trauma that drives the, the disorder, just giving people uh, drugs to, to help them deal with that is, is not solving the root cause of the problem. So many people identify the, the root causes of these problems, the, the mental health crisis that's, that's, that we're having um, in the world, certainly in, in the U.S., the crisis of um, I think deaths of despair, so overdose and suicides are rapidly increasing. Um, the crises of, of mass incarceration. Um, I think that the general meaning crisis that that society is in right now. Uh, these are all symptoms of uh, maybe, or maybe their underlying causes of mental health, which is the symptom itself. But but all of these things work together, and to get at the root of the problem, we're going to have to hit it from many different angles. Um, and so I, I do think as the public begins to be better educated about psychedelics, about the actual risks and the actual benefits informed by data, informed by scientific research rather than government propaganda, um, I, I think that that will greatly 
benefits uh, psychedelic research itself because more funding will become available as, as people realize how effective this is. Um, and I think as psychedelics make it into the medical mainstream and these begin to be things that are prescribed routinely to patients, uh, you, you then have very conservative areas of the country, perhaps, where you, you hear that you know your uh, your aunt's best friends uh, had this incredible impact from their psychedelic treatment, and, and then all of a sudden, when it, it becomes real to you, um, when there's someone you know who's been completely transformed and, and noticeably uh, improved and, and healed, um, that then changes your attitude broadly toward the issues of, of drugs and the issues of uh, addiction and responsibility and, and everything else here. So I, I do think that the, the political forces and the decriminalization and the changing regulatory environment works together with the research in a very valuable way. And I think it's all important. You know how there's been some criticism towards Big Pharma about um, things like fentanyl? being sold and prescribed and all the, the opioid crisis. And some people attribute the, um, the blame of that to big pharma. Do you think there's a risk that unless properly debated and discussed, big pharma will acquire all the psychedelic startups and then the same problems will occur? Or do you think that the psychedelic industry is gonna be a standalone industry separate to like the classic like GSKs and places like that of the world? It's a, a great question, one that uh, many people are asking, uh, certainly. I, I think uh, many, many angles here. I think part of it is the paradigm of psychedelic therapy is is different than the normal paradigm of big pharma. So, so normally it's prescribe a pill, take the pill home, take the pill every day. Uh, it'll help manage your symptoms. Um, whereas psychedelic therapy is is about a, a one time or at least a, a very infrequent event where you uh, you come into a clinic, you're very heavily supervised. There's a lot of support and, and a lot of cost that goes into that support. Um, and ideally, there's there's a huge therapeutic uh, impact from that event where the patient uh, hopefully is, is healed and hopefully there's a very durable response where the patient doesn't then relapse going forward. So I think most of big pharma is still waiting to see how those factors all play out. The factors of, uh, of intellectual property and cost and durability of, of treatment response. And so you don't see a lot of the farmers jumping in yet. Uh, I, I do think it's going to become pretty critical for, for pharma to join forces with the small biotechs that are, are pushing the science forward right now, because the big farmers just have the resources for uh, for marketing and distribution and, and running uh, late stage clinical trials. And so it's the typical biotech pharma model that there's either a, a co-development or a licensing agreement or an acquisition that, that happens with pharma somewhere along the road. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see when pharma jumps in and do they jump in quickly or do they wait until these psychedelics companies become uh, uh, bigger and bigger and, and become you know, standalone companies. And, and that's Certainly our game plan is to, to become a, a full stack drug development company and go all the way through phase three and, and market our own drugs. Um, and at, at any point when there is pharma infrastructure that's uh, available to join forces and gets more of these treatments to more patients more quickly and more safely and, and more reliably, we're certainly very happy to, uh, to, to have those discussions. I think there's also a, a big angle of people in the psychedelic space who 
are particularly concerned with the collision of something that has been seen as almost sacred for thousands of years. These kind of drugs have been used in particularly indigenous contexts in very religious or very sacred kind of situations. And the thought of then commoditizing that as a product uh, and then marketing that product and running commercials for psychedelics on, on TV, uh, I think that rubs a lot of people the, the wrong way. Um, and so we're going to have to figure out how to take society's institutions and structures and merge them with this force of psychedelics because that was an absolute failure in the 60s it, it became a, an antagonistic relationship where uh, there was this new rite of passage the, these psychedelics that young people would take that was just completely disconnected from uh, mainstream society and it was just an absolute disaster and and the the us versus them mentality and the partisan nature of society at that time just led to the disaster that happened with psychedelics and the pausing of this valuable research for decades. And so I hope we'll avoid that situation today. I hope that it won't be one side versus the other side. I hope that it will be both sides using these tools as a way to, to find common solutions to the problems that we face. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a great question and it's going to be a, a messy process of integration. Um, but we're beginning to see all of the early signs of traditional biotech VCs getting in the space, pharma just dipping its toes into the space, the first uh, medical codes being issued, uh, various government agencies preparing for the approval of the first psychedelic therapies over the course of the next year or so. Um, so it's, it's uh, happening now and we'll be knee deep in, in sorting through those issues. Well, I personally hope that it's people like you who are at the helm of these organizations as they start to grow and gain traction because they're like your level of understanding and awareness of all of the parts of the cyberdeck industry are just incredible to see and learn about. And everyone in the industry who I've spoken to, most people have that broader vision as well as information. I think that's quite a rarity in founders and business people because most people are here to make money. Um, so yeah, I hope that you're the guy running Wednesday when it's a huge unicorn. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I hope we get there. Yeah. And it's, it's important to have the right pe people around you. So, uh, I, you know, you have people to counterbalance your mistakes and, and your own, uh, idiosyncrasies and, and tendencies. So that's, that's the important thing to build the right team. I think it's very noble how you talk about your team so much, and they are clearly an incredible team. I'm keen to know about you and how you you used to work as an accountant then you became a vc now you founded a company now you're a dad so you've had to change who you are multiple times and i'm keen to know on that sort of journey to like self-actualization i suppose what is the most um important sacrifice you had to make to move forwards I think at some point in everyone's life, you face something that is impossible, a pain that is too great to bear. And what happens when you get there is that you die. So the person you thought you were can't keep going. And so you have to become a new person. Life is full of those situations, you know, the 
deaths of, of parents, illness, disease, catastrophes. I think it's a common human experience, right? And I think that part of the power of psychedelics is that they can bring you into that space where there is that clarity about what it is that needs to die, what it is that no longer serves and who it is you need to become, what, what change in identity is necessary to move forward and to be aligned. Um, and so I, I think that being able to more frequently come to that place and to um, even begin to, to live in, in that state, in, in that place where you are letting go of, of who you are on a consistent daily basis, or at least uh, uh, more frequently, um, I, I think is the key. I, I think at this point, I've uh, lost touch with a number of people who I used to be. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, that's my, my plan for the future, too, to try to uh, be like that more often. Fascinating. Great answer. I was going to ask about business and stuff, but I think that conversation has so much in it that I would actually rather leave it there and implore people to take five minutes just to mull those things over because everything mentioned is not something to just stack in a podcast like boom, 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 boom. They're all huge ideas to contemplate that could have massive implications for each other's lives and society as a whole. So thank you, Dylan, for coming on to talk about it. As I say, I really hope that you are at the forefront of this revolution because I really do admire you. I think you're a great guy. So yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you for the kind words. It's been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you having me on and uh, we'll talk again soon. 